You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads, His Dark Materials, Episode 23, The Amber Spyglass, Chapters 23 through 25. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe, and we're here. We're here. We are in chapters 23, 24, 25, No Way Out, Mrs. Coulter in Geneva, 25, St. Jean Lizzo. This is, we're getting to the tense portions of the books. It, we are. Lots of tense things happening. Marisa is out there this episode doing dangerous things. She is doing her own stunts mm-hmm. in this chapter that she's in. Lyra is not feeling so hot, is she? She's feeling down, down in the, the dumps, the, the underworld dumps. Yeah, she's literally feeling down, as far down as one could go, in that they Way are down. in the underworld. Very far Under- down, down, as we find out from Will moments. Way but down under the ground. <laughs> as you know, because those moments, those are going to be discussed in this episode, because they happen in these chapters. But there are moments that happen after these chapters, and this is not a reread podcast. This is only a read podcast. So anything that happens after these chapters will be in the discussion. So any spoilers will be in the discussion. Everything from book one, book two, up until this point. Fair game. But when you get to the discussion, if you don't want to know what happens, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Good advice, Eliana. Don't do it. Yes, our discussion will spoil the shit out of everything else. We're going to talk about the novellas. Not not the new one that isn't out yet, but it's coming mm. out in April, right? I'm very excited for that new novella Pullman announced, even if it's kind of a novella. lantern slide redux. A novella. But yes, we cover all the novellas from Lyra's Oxford to Once Upon a Time in the North to The Collector's. We will talk about all those kind of things and the books of dust. La Belle Sauvage, which we have covered here at Girls Gone Canon in full. Please, please go listen to that if you haven't and you're looking for La Belle Sauvage content. And we will also probably talk about the secret commonwealth. We might. And maybe speculation at the future books of dust. The boobs of dust, as our <laughs> Discord jokingly calls them. When will the boobs of dust come oh out? <laughs> That's a... <laughs> Uh, I think that started from our friend Pete. Oh, yeah. uh, We'll talk about Pete in a second, actually. Our our friend Pete, though, I think his phone auto-corrected it. Or maybe it was Cassidy who was with us last time. Might have been Pete. But yes, yes. Pete is doing some exciting things, and we'll talk about that again on the Discord in a second. But first... We want to be sad because we've gotten like just like tiny little tidbits from HBO. They're like, oh, look, a scene allegedly from season three, but no trailer, no release date. Big sad. I'm suffering. Yeah. I'm suffering. I, I think that uh, they're, they've wrapped it up, right? Everything's wrapped in the last handful of weeks or so. They're wrapping up. They're doing the post stuff. They're really getting some of that stuff out. They've put out a little marketing. I think it's coming, you know. Yeah. Spring. And I'm not. Spring will sprung. I'm not, like, mad at that because, like, I also understand there's probably a lot of post-production that happens 
has to happen in this. I mean, you've got ghosts, you've got Malefa, you've got Galavespians, you've got the world of the Malefa. There's and there's so many things that are gonna have, and all of, of course the demons, right? There's so many things that are gonna have to be like CG'd. Yeah, there's a lot of work cut out for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Yorick, not just that, but yeah. Yorick. Yeah, we've seen uh, the battles. Mm-hmm. I mean. Some of the other things that we can't tell you yet because it would spoil the rest of the book. So you should be reading this book with us and not get spoiled. But it's a read podcast. There's a lot of stuff to come. It's a read podcast. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. If you don't want to listen to the spoilers, don't do it, Eliana said. It's a really great way to greet your listeners. Don't do it. <sighs> we'll warn you. Yeah. And, you know, I do want to say, with this new novella coming out that Pullman's putting out, right, do you think that it will have anything that is going to be played with or addressed in Pullman's world building, also addressed in the show, in series three of his Dark Materials, you know, the Amber Spyglass? I think so. It seems like he's been working closely with them, right? Like, on some of those notes, he probably has already given them this in the past and maybe maybe he gave it to them before right and maybe like jane chanter was like or jack thorne uh was like wow this is really good phil uh you should definitely put this out for the public i wish that i had because like they're like of course as we know jack thorne's also like a a big fan so Mm -hmm. does it does the one wolf inside of you ever get jealous of the other wolf inside of you that knows that there are tons of George R. R. Martin drafts all over the internet that are not in a novella for you to read? I mean, I don't. Anyways, I don't want to so. see. I don't want to see George's like <laughs> scrapped bits and dirty laundry. You know? No, I want his polished shit. I got that. Well, and sorry, I'm just thinking his. Sorry, I don't mean his shit. It's not shit. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited to see if there's anything in this novella that coincides with some of series three and uh, anything that might allude to the books of dust, the boobs of dust, number three. Yeah. Boobs of dust. The boobs of dust. And speaking of the boobs of dust, (laughs) we do have a Patreon. (laughs) And you can access our Discord once you join our Patreon. In the Thunder Tier, in the Thunder Tier are above. Um, but, and and we've talked a little bit about the happy hour slash brunch, and this month it's going to be on January 30th, so this coming Sunday. But there are other events happening, other community events that are happening too. Yeah, our friend Pete, who may or may not have been the boobs of dust originator, we have to get a fact check on that from our executives, but... Our friend Pete is hosting a rewatch of series one of his Dark Materials. It will run into series two. He's going to see them all out. And so what is happening is the goal is for you to have come having watched. He'll be hosting a discussion. The first part of the discussion will be dust free, right? Mm. No dust on me, no dust on you. We'll keep it spoiler free just for the episode for the first part. So... If you're watching for the first time, you are totally welcome. We will ask you to bow out at the discussion part afterwards when they start to spoil what's going on uh, throughout the season. But yeah, so it's kind of exciting that if you want to watch the show for the first time and you're a patron over in the Thunder tier at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, you'll get access to this event on the 29th, the day before our brunch at 1 p.m. Eliana time. 
E.T. Phone home. Yes, Eastern Eastern time. <laughs> Eliana time. <laughs> yes. So, hope to see you all there. And other things that happen on our Patreon. For patrons in the Stranger Turn Above, you get bonus episodes every month. This month's bonus episode is going to be in the Song of Ice and Fire episode. It will be another stop on our tour of the free cities, Norvos. Yeah, you're making me really Norvos oh about God. it, Eliana. Really? I feel I'm pretty sorry. confident. No, I feel good about feel it. Good. I'm excited about it. And next month, we're doing something a little special. And I know some people over at the Patreon at the Discord have already gotten kind of a head start on reading this, but we're going to be covering Cersei, not Cersei Lannister from A Song of Ice and Fire. However, another Cersei, a Cersei Mrs. Coulter, could even be influenced by, Hmm. who knows, Cersei from Greek mythology, Helios' daughter, by Madeline Miller. So the book is Cersei, C-I-R-C-E, by Madeline Miller. Our patrons in the Stranger tier and above, the $5 tier and above, every month get a bonus episode, and we've been branching out a little bit to bring you something else fun. And uh, we had fun covering the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller last month. We thought, why not finish the next novel together and chat about it? Yeah, so, the Cersei POV, but not that Cersei. (laughs) Someday, someday. Well, I'm sure people who are tuning in feel that maybe there is no way out. And by that, I mean chapter 23 of the Amber Spyglass. We're jumping into it. It's entitled No Way Out. The opening quote for this section is, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free from St. John. Don't do it. What? I don't know. I was just laughing about you saying don't do it because it's killing me. I can't stop thinking about it. Something I really like about No Way Out, chapter 23, is that now that we're in the underworld and we're allowed to talk about the underworld and Roger, because that was very hard to keep from all of you for so long, right? I had to really, really hold that within myself. And now we're here. We can talk about it. There's this bit from Northern Lights and Golden Compass, depending on where you read it, what world you're in. Now that Lyra had the taste for exploring it, she abandoned her usual haunt, the irregular Alps of the college roofs, and plunged with Roger into this netherworld. From playing at gobblers, she had turned to hunting them, for what could be more likely than that they were lurking out of sight below the ground? Mm. So this comes from the early chapters for Lyra and Roger, right back in Northern Lights, and... Of course, as we get to the 25th chapter, it's the French Alps, right, in this world. Uh, Saint-Jean-les-Eaux is the French Alps. It's based off of a different French Alps. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's legitimately like, it's like Pullman's world French Alps there. So that's where Coulter's battling it out at. So the irregular Alps... And now she's plunged into the netherworld. We have abandoned the irregular Alps... And we've plunged into the netherworld. I really loved that connection. I was rereading. So, uh, I have a handful of them today because I was just rereading. Rereading some Roger moments and trying to let it all sink in. Be sad. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now she's in the regular Alps. I mean, that is what the Alps are, right? They're just like the regular Alps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I didn't know that. And there's a couple of things from book one that really start paying off in these chapters. I mean, they've been paying off before, but they like really, really come to pass in these ones because you can tell like maybe maybe Pullman was like figuring things out 
before, like, in terms of how is this going to go. But he always knew that this part was going to happen, so really great he has neatly etched some of those little like tied him off with a bow moments yeah. of like what if i called back to chapter three and said this exact same language or etc it, it's all really nice that he knew what he was doing but he went back in and etched it in with a pen yeah you know let's just shade it a little yeah yeah and i mean these they're moments that were foreshadowed as you've pointed out right well here's some things that are not foreshadowed at the moment. For example, Lyra and Will wondering what the Harpies will do when they let the ghosts out. Salmachia says they're getting close now and that Lyra could see Roger if she climbed up on the rocks. But Lyra doesn't want to waste time. She just wants to see Roger. She wants to be cheerful for Roger. But it's hard to feel happy when all she can see in her mind is dog pan. Right? Dog formed, alone, heartbroken on the jetty. Big sad. She finds Roger, though, very suddenly, and he embraces her, but unfortunately he passes through her arms like smoke. There's like a brief moment where it says like his hand almost clutched on her heart, but still passed through. And I was like, Ugh. and he also can whisper, though, and he says, Lyra, I never thought I'd ever see you again. I thought even if you did come down here when you was dead, you'd be much older. You'd be a grown up. and You wouldn't want to speak to me. He blames himself for not running to her back then on that mountaintop, which was not the Alps, irregular or regular, and for not fighting Mrs. Coulter nor Asriel. And Lyra says, but that weren't your fault, stupid, blaming herself instead. But Roger says it wasn't her fault either, and that maybe he would have died some other way, which is true of all of us, if you think about it. We all do die someday. Some way. It's really sweet that, like, even in friendship, they're like, no, you're stupid, stupid. Like, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're wrong about it. I would have died. About the stupidest thing. Right? Mm-hmm. The stupidest thing that friends fight about, even in the afterlife. The stupidest thing. I can't Whose wait. Whose fault is it that you died? The stupidest thing. to fight with you. About whose fault someday. it is. Yeah, in the afterlife. We, all, we almost fought that one time when we were like, is dog dead? I... I'm very sad for Lyra in this that she immediately is like, no, it was my fault, idiot. And also, Roger, like, Lyra's really downtrodden in this chapter. Uh, obviously, the ghosts are kind of feeding on her happiness and her aliveness. Uh, and But that either of these children are blaming themselves like yeah. this. It's not their fault at all that horrible people exist in the world. Lyra went above and beyond to save Roger or try to help him, not just once twice three times even could be argued and i don't know it it also sucks to think that roger probably thinks this is his fault because of kind of his life of like being a servant Mm. and the way he's been spoken to all his life like i'm sure many things he's been told are his fault his whole life that weren't his fault so it's natural for him to immediately go to it's my fault Right, and it's like, no, you were murdered, <laughs> and like, you were like ten. Yeah, yeah, and I'm. It, it feels bad because to me, it feels like he he's internalized this idea. Of, oh well, I didn't fight back, so I must have been asking for it. It feels like shades of that, even though I know that's not exactly what it is. It, it is different, and like you said, right? It's neither of their faults. And something else that you pointed out of, like, Lyra's really sad mental state here, right? Because she feels responsible for it, even though again, it's not her fault either. Um, it it's we're doing the Samuel Tarley chapters right now in A Song of Ice and Fire, and like 
obviously it's taken her a lot of courage and bravery to get all the way down here and I think it shows a lot of bravery on her part not just to make it to the underworld and be insistent on that but to be able to like come face to face with someone you feel that you've deeply wronged and I think that's really courageous yeah I mean she sacrificed her childhood yeah because he lost his yes like that's really what happens and we're gonna talk about sacrifices later in these chapters because we we do have some prominent sacrifices coming up uh and in the light of that you know you're just reminded of that as the shades of these children and people all mill about Mm -hmm. the ghosts and will kind of move away letting them have their moment Will is nursing his hand, which, uh uh-oh, this is kind of weird, right? Had Mm. started bleeding again. We thought this was fully healed, so the underworld is doing something here. And Salmachia goes to help him. Lyra describes how they got here and what she had to do to get here to Pan. Roger, in turn, tells her this place is awful and the harpies are awful. They're always whispering and never letting them rest and telling them all the bad things they've ever done and their worst nightmares, making them feel awful. Lyra then gets the courage to tell him her secret, her plan, right? All close, all mischievous, like they once used to do at Jordan College. The witches have a prophecy about her, and she had proven herself at Dr. Lancelius's, the witches' council. She was to do something great and important in another world. Only I never spoke of it, and I reckon I must have even forgot it. There was just so much else going on, she says. Classic, classic Lyra. She tells him when Coulter captured her for the first time that she dreamed of Roger, that she remembered all of their adventures, like when they sailed Ma Costa's boat almost to Abingdon, a memory that Roger then says, I'll never forget. She says when the Egyptians saved her from Coulter and looked after her, Ma Costa told her she had witch oil in her soul. That the Egyptians were water people, but Lyra, Lyra was a fire person. I thought it was interesting that Lyra had actually overheard these conversations and we find that out here. And it's like, oh, so you've been just like holding that in these past two-ish books. And I can see that it makes sense that she did. And she's trying to say like, this might be like fulfillment of that. But to me, it almost feels a little bit like, not that it is a retcon, but because it, it does feel like gardened into the story. Yes, grown. Gardened into Eden, yeah. Ariana would say. Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't say that, but maybe you would say that, Chloe. <laughs> you can take that credit. <laughs> well, uh, Lyra says that Dr. Linsalius said it was vital that Lyra didn't know her destiny until it had happened, and so she had never asked the alethiometer about it. Again, justifications for this retcon, but not retcon. Anyways, but finding Roger was sort of proof she has to rescue the ghosts in the land of the dead. And she thinks it's because of something that Asriel had said of, Death is going to die! It's not the best oratorship on his part, but anyways. Um, Lyra makes Roger promise not to give this plan away yet. But it's sort of too late, because uh, he had already told the ghosts that, you know what, Lyra's gonna come and rescue them, just like she did in Bolvanger! He's all like, I says Lyra will do it if anyone can. They wished it'd be true. They wanted to believe me, but they never really did. I could tell. Yeah, there's this super horrible, awful, sad bit that then he says every kid that comes to the world of the dead would always say, I bet my dad will come get me or my mom. And if it's not them, it's their friends or their grandpa. 
They always think someone's going to come rescue them, but they never do. Damn. And even sadder is like, Lyra and Will both already know this kind of feeling. Yeah. Of like waiting for someone to come home that never comes home for them or Mm. never picks them up to take them home when they're in the dangerous bad place. So it's like a double whammy of emotion. That's a great point. Yeah. Of like now you have to save them. You have to. Adults that have failed them and Lyra's like, well, they are gonna if they're not gonna do this for us, we will. And I will say in the children's defense, their parents do eventually come down to them. They just don't rescue them because they're also dead. Yeah, in fact, it's just to mooch, you know? They're like, I'm not going to pay rent. Yeah, we all live here now. This is our new home. Oh my god. <laughs> well, as we all know, this time, Roger was right. Lyra was here. Lyra then remembers her friends and says, oh, she couldn't have done it without them. Please meet Will, Chevalier Tiali's and Zalmachia. And immediately Roger's like, okay, who's Will? Where'd you find this guy? Where's he from? It's kind of cute. It's a little, it's a little cute. And this line is really, this is very sweet that she starts to explain and Pullman writes, quite unaware of how her voice changed, how she sat up straighter and how even her eyes looked different when she told the story of her meeting with Will and the fight for the subtle knife. How could she have known? But Roger noticed, with the sad, voiceless envy of the unchanging dead. Uh, oh god, it hurts so bad. Which part? Like, There's a lot of different parts. All of it. Yeah. I mean, it's so bittersweet. Yeah. For reasons, but especially because, you know, Lyra is falling for Will. But also, like, that was Roger's spot, man. Yeah, he never got a chance. He never even got a chance to get turned down, you know? Yeah. He never got a chance <laughs> to experience saying. it all, you know? Experience yeah. that kind of love. Not even with Lyra, yeah, just with anyone. Yeah. He never got a chance to, like, mack on a girl like Will's gonna do with Lyra, you know? Yeah. Or to desire anyone, you know? Like, yeah. he never got to that point in his life, so big sad. <sighs> Meanwhile, Will and the Galavespians discuss their plan. Will says we'll open the world and let the ghosts out with the knife. And the Galavespians who he's come to respect sit there and they're pretty astonished. And they say that would make the authority powerless if you freed them all. Yeah, Tiali's is like very impressed with this plan. He's like, that's an amazing plan like in the voice of Elliot from Euphoria. That's an amazing plan. (laughs) Or Lori. That is an amazing Anyway, so. You're a genius (laughs) Rue. I do really love this moment because the Gala Vespians, and we've kind of been hinting at this with um, our previous discussions of like, why are the Gala Vespians being so mean? I don't remember them being this mean, right? Because they've really come around at this time. And this is, I think, my lasting impression of them. They are here. They are full on supporting these kids. And they're like, wow, that is so good. And at first they were like, yeah, this is a very risky plan. I hate that the kids aren't listening to us. But they found a whole lot of respect for these kids and their convictions. They see that they're serious about this. And now they also see, like, I see, maybe these kids, like, really are chosen for a reason, right? Because this is, again, a huge plan. Would be a huge blow to the authority. Very, very effective. Like, in my opinion, way bigger and way more subversive than anything that, like, Asriel's ever done in regards to the authority. And I'm also, like, what has Asriel even accomplished, right? He's made, like, a flying Tesla and... 
everyone's like super gung-ho about him yeah and he even tweets all the time and bombs his own stock i don't know what's up with that, <laughs> he kind of he would do that i feel He'd be tweeting, be like, outside the authority lair, what's God. up, bitch? At God, at God, come at me, bitch. At Jack. I would love to be at Jack, at Jack, at God, unblock me, you coward. Yeah, this is a big, like, heavy Galavespian, like, strength episode mm-hmm. in general. These three chapters mm-hmm. hold a lot of emotion for the Galavespians. And that scene here, like, their unrelenting faith now in the children compared to Lord Roke's unrelenting faith in getting the job fucking done in the next chapter and protecting Marisa in a way, right? Yeah. Like, he didn't want that blood on his hands and he was doing it for, you know, saving the world and free will and shit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's important. It's an important cause. And now that Only the Galavaspians can see the scope yeah. of, you know, everything, I mean, that is big. It- it's... What do you do? You remove the labor. You can't complete production without the means of labor, right? So you cut them off at their source. Yeah. You just cut it off. You free the souls. You free the slaves to the authority. Yeah. All of the souls that have been enslaved in his underworld, you take them out. It's a brilliant plan. <laughs> a genius plan. Amazing plan. <laughs> Amazing plan, Rue. Wow, Rue, you're a genius. Fuck no, I'm not invested in that plan, Fezco says. I did not like how the plan started. So Will thinks that after that, they're going to have to escape and then go find their demons, right? And then he's like, okay, this is too much to be thinking of then. There's a lot between now and then. We have to think of now. He swears the Galavaspians to secrecy because he doesn't know if this is going to work and he doesn't want to give away the plan too early to the ghosts or... The harpies. He sends the Galavespians to distract the harpies while he toys with his plan. He cuts through windows, finding only rock on the other side. He opens several windows and tries to change his angle each time, but each one shows a rock. He then pushes himself to have that little resonance, right, that usually reveals a world, not unlike Lyra focusing on the alethiometer, but the touch is wrong whenever he tries to feel for an edge. Mm. Lyra can tell. She's watching him. Something's wrong. And he says, we need to move. We need to find a higher place to cut into. But the harpies won't let them. Lyra's scared, but he reassures her if they have to cut their way out with a tunnel, they'll do it. Yeah, so they are underground. And speaking of book one things, just wanted to remind everyone of that time long, long ago. And I think we discussed it in a discussion back then. When we talked about the Chthonic Railway in, like, book one, and how Mrs. Coulter wouldn't permit Lyra to take it as it wasn't for people of their class, you know, they don't ride the subway or whatever, and now Lyra is finally in that Chthonic area, that Chthonic station, the underground slash the underworld, literally under, um, again, like, that railway slash subway is underground, and it's a place that is full of people of different classes, no matter what. Yeah, this is absolutely an underground kind of railroad idea to cut that tunnel out. That's crazy. Yeah, that too. That too. That's interesting. And it is a literal thonic railroad. Lyra's worried about Will. He looks ill, in pain. He has dark rings under his eyes, his fingers bleeding once more. Her magic girl powers have worn off in the underworld. And she feels like he looks herself. It's probably because of the lack of demons. She thinks, and she aches for Pan. But meanwhile, the ghosts are kind of pressing close, trying to take their remaining warmth. 
mm. not leaving them alone. One girl begs Lyra not to forget them when they return back, to tell people of them. And Lyra says, I will, what's your name? And the girl, the girl forgot. She's embarrassed, she's ashamed, mm. she forgot her name. Another boy says, I've forgotten mine as well. And then he says, it's better to forget. You forget everything here eventually, except the sunshine and the wind. Never that. Another kid asks the alive folk to remind them of the sunshine and wind and how to play in the sky, and they clamor for Lyra to give them a story time. She says to Will, what should I do? And he says, tell them. Tell them the truth, not lies, like with the harpies. Feeling weak, Lyra makes for a dead tree with bone-white branches and sits there, ready to do the hardest thing she's ever done in her entire life. Tell the truth. Yeah. Behind them, Tialis comes to warn Will to keep his knife ready, that the harpies plan to come back. The dead figures cluster around Lyra, and Will tries to keep them back to give her space. All but Roger, who stays close, her closest disciple, listening passionately. She tells them of Jordan College, of her and Roger's adventures, finding the rook with the broken leg, looking after it, or exploring the wine cellars, or drinking canary, or tokai. She couldn't tell. I wouldn't be able to tell either. <laughs> and I've been drinking uh, a while. <laughs> I love that line when she was just like in that first book. She's just like, well, I think it's fine when Roger's I, like, this is awful. They favorite. do this. She's like, I love it. I know. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Every time I'm hungover, yeah. I think about that scene. Yeah. Roger's ghost proudly and desperately nods along, corroborating her stories as she tells them of the great battle between the Oxford Townies and Clayburners and how the sun shone for days, the clay and mud drying and cracking beneath them. She describes the smells from the kiln and from the river. Yeah, I, I just love these stories. I mean, I think there's something really beautiful about... Of all the stories that, like, Lyra could have chosen to tell, she chose these ones because, I mean, as as we know, right, like, she has obviously way more, like, exciting and salacious stories to talk about because we were there the past two books on those adventures. Um, even if she, I guess, doesn't think that they're that exciting, which is why she never tells them, or, like, that was a way better story than the one that, like, anyways. But she picks these moments from her home, right, because... They are stories that Roger can remember, and again, they're maybe like not swashbuckling, but they're real to him, and they allow him to again remember and relive that outside world. And I think even in the simplicity of these childhood stories and childhood memories, they are so full of emotion for Lyra too, and and even the reader because, again, like as you pointed out, right, like these are stories that we heard about in the first book, and it creates this like it recreates that sense of nostalgia for readers looking back on their own journey through the books. Yeah, I'm so struck by the structure of these kind of final run of chapters, mm. uh, how much it broadly parallels the first book and some of the second mm. book and some of the reaches. Yeah. And it's a really great way to reincorporate those memories because it's also like breathing life back into Roger, both metaphorically for us, the reader, as well as like literally in the story. Like it's yeah. giving him a chance to have a story again, yeah. right? Like it, it's it's definitely like proving he lived he was yeah. he is still right uh when you're hopeless and you have nothing like it gives him something to hold on to and i i know there's some great parallels it holds but it also holds like kind of just an homage to roger's character right because we've spent these two books with our bloody hands from roger's roger's awful death and every single one of those adventures 
is from a chapter where he is very much so involved and very much a main character alongside Lyra and they're getting into mischief together. So it all around is really just a sweet nod to have those adventures out loud Yeah, once more. I love what you were saying, right, about like it breathing life back into Roger because it's kind of comes back to the idea of... You st- it, they don't, I think, necessarily talk about it in this story, but it comes up a lot in other stories and media of like people die two deaths right when you actually die and when people forget you and stop talking about you and so by telling these stories as you said right it continues to give roger life you keep them alive for you and for them yeah i think that's really important yeah well The ghosts crowd closer, feeding on her words, remembering back when they had flesh and trying to will her to never stop. She tells them about how one day the war between the Clayburners' children and the townies escalated fully and the Clayburners turned everyone to a muddy mess, destroying their fortifications, and that no one had ever had a better day in their lives. And again, I love that. I love that. I think it's just so brilliantly done and and it's such a well-chosen story for this. And then she finishes right and then she looks to will lyra is exhausted and suddenly has a bit of a shock as she realizes that oh it's not just the ghosts and her companions that she's telling the story to but also to the harpies they had settled around the branches and they're listening solemnly also spellbound and then lyra begins to just for some reason just rile them up because i don't know like why would you pick a fight with someone that Seems like they're finally listening and being quieter on you. But no, she decides to pick a fight. She's like, why aren't they attacking her now? Go on, make a ghost of her. And No Name herself speaks, saying that thousands of years ago, they were given the power by the authority to see the worst in everyone. That they've fed on that ever since. But now Lyra plans to free their food. And now they plan to defile and tear at every single ghost that arrives here. Lyra is distraught. She feels she has somehow probably made things worse as the harpies begin to scatter the ghosts, flying maliciously about them, and says that, oh no, we've ruined it, and that now the ghosts will think that they betrayed them, but Tiali tells her not to despair. Call everyone back. Tell them stories once more and entrance them again. Then Tiali's like, leaps to a rock and makes a grand stand and tells the harpies to come back and answer his questions truly, asking why they flew with Lyra outside the wall, yet sat very still listening to her stories just now. I love it so much. And no name does respond. No name says, because it was true. Because she spoke the truth. Because it was nourishing. Because it was feeding us. Because we couldn't help it. Because it was true. Because we had no idea that there was anything but wickedness. Because it brought us news of the world and the sun and the wind and the rain. Because it was true. Perfect. I love that. Awards. You're really. welcome. Awards. Thank you. All that, the was amaz- that was amazing. Yeah. BAFTA. BAFTA. Or BAFTA. BAFTA. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong world. Wrong world. Did you say be amazed? MTV Teen Choice Awards. I'm going to have to remember. All I knew is that because it was true yeah. was the grounding for that. So I can I can isolate that, that, that clip for you if you'd like. Um. <laughs> for me. Yeah, it's just, just for, for me, you. not just, for you. Yeah. Sorry. Sounds like this uh, one's for you. Things that are also for me. I feel like, and as you'll see in the next few moments, um, as agreements are made, this is the plot to Monsters, Inc. 
Like, literally, this is the plot to Monsters, Inc., which also coincidentally came out the year right after this book. Eating dreams. Eating them up. Yeah, or laughter instead of screams, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, these these harpies are a piece of work, right? There is a little flip-flopping going on with them, too. Now they're like, well, we kind of like the stories, but we hate you, but we like you. Let yeah. me eat you. I mean, your stories. Mike Wazowski. <laughs> <laughs> Tialis fearlessly tries to bargain. Instead of wickedness and cruelty, what if, from now on, they ask the ghosts that came here for stories? And if they listen to each ghost story, all true stories, they will have the right to hear them, and they will have the right to tell them. No name is like, hmm, no, but go on. Go on, I'm a little interested. And no name's like, we used to be feared and honored for what we've done for the authority. We still have pride, we need an honorable place. This time, though, Lady Selmachia steps in and smooths things out. And she's like, you're right. Oh, my God. Your honorableness. You are so right. No name. You guys should be so honored. This is important. And so what you would be doing is guiding the ghosts from the lake's landing place as the keepers of this entire place. Getting the ghosts, bringing them in, and then taking them out of a new opening, out of the world. And in exchange, you'll pay for that guidance through their stories as currency. So this this sells. This fucking sells. No Name is so fucking into this. No Name and her sisters are like, okay, how about this one tiny clause? If they lie to us, or if they have nothing to tell me, if they're boring as fuck all, then we can refuse to guide them. They can just be lost and wandering. This is the new deal that the underworld has been waiting for, right? So they call this fair. They make a treaty. In exchange for Lyra's story, the harpies take travelers and the knife to the higher ground, this time a long way off through the tunnels and the caves. Yes. It's... Brilliant. It's it's really brilliant. And again, Monsters, Inc. It's a good plan. All around. This is, this is a genius plan. This is an amazing plan. <laughs> Not like the way this plan began. Uh, that That is how the Harpies felt at first. And then they were like, no, we want to do labor. And I was like, nah. And maybe that's why I'm not a terrifying bird woman, because I couldn't relate to that. But <laughs> Well, when it's all you've known that's right, true forever and ever, I mean, they've been conditioned to believe this is their purpose. But and they would have been learning, bored. Yeah. That's all bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, I get it. That's how retirement works, right? This is kind of like a retirement clause for them. We're just going to ask that you guys step back on your duties and do them less. Yeah, they become like stage two psychopomps, right? Like first you got your deaths, then you got the harpies, and they're like, <laughs> we're going to take you through this level of the underworld, and then you can just go back to where you came from. <laughs> and you can do it every day. Right. In fact, we're really just giving you a harder job, but that's okay. At least you get stories out of it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like torturing people is hard too. Maybe like now that people are nice to them, maybe someone will like wash their face. But apparently this is just how vultures are, as we've learned from, from our friend Cassidy disgusting you know we did talk <laughs> so gross the smell of it my god we talked about the the theories last week we talked about the harpies the greek theories and i think there's something interesting that lyra the prophecy was all whoop-de-doo exciting but she's changing changing fate 
no one yeah. knew what she was going to do. And this is like a total spike in the road for whatever anyone planned about this girl. Everyone is making so many plans for Lyra and her fate and her destiny and what's going to happen with her. And like Lyra is doing the unthinkable things they would never have dreamed of doing. And it made me really start thinking about the idea of exchanging these stories as payment, these words as payment, right? Thinking of different like fictional things of just like where we're exchanging words for payment, like the Sphinx. Mm, yeah, yeah. Right? The Sphinx is kind of interesting that like figuring out the riddle of the harpy and figuring out what the harpy wants as Lord Rogue was like, oh, so you like those stories, huh, little guy? Lyra, like is trying to pass the Sphinx, not unlike Oedipus. And Oedipus answered the riddles, right? What creature has one voice and yet becomes four-footed, two-footed, and three-footed? Man, Oedipus had said, who crawls on all fours as a baby, two feet as adult, and uses a walking stick in old age. And one of the other uh, commonly rumored riddles, which, you know, didn't date quite as far back as that one, is there are two sisters. One gives birth to the other, and she, in turn, gives birth to the first. Who are they? And the answer is day and night, is the other one commonly kind of accepted. After that, Oedipus becomes this liminal or threshold character, kind of showing the death of the Sphinx as a movement, right, in society, a change in the odds and the gods, right? The, the rise of the Olympian gods. And Lyra, for many accounts, is kind of Oedipus here, that she's able to solve the harpies, trick them into coming along, defying the fates who have written her thread in one way, and now her thread is being recoiled in a totally different way, uh, and maybe even defying what the prophecy originally intended in some aspects, right? We don't know. We don't know if prophecy works, is real, etc., fate, whatever, yada yada. Is it written? Is it wet? Is it dry? We don't know. We just don't know about that ink that we're writing fate with. Absolutely. And I mean, like, that's the point of Lyra, right? Like, she's going to make it so that fate is gone. And and yeah, um, I like the idea of the harpies as kind of these sphinx-like characters. Di different characters, I guess, and or creatures in Greek mythology. But, like, also, they're, they're like these gatekeepers and... You know, there's also something else, mythologically speaking. I, I think I've kept this mostly to the discussion before, for no reason, um, but in the discussion, that there's almost something about, like, Orpheus for Lyra, that paying with her stories, yeah. that's how Orpheus got big, right? That's how Orpheus actually got in with the gods, is being able to play and write and wordsmith for them and say the right things and play the right tune and sing the right songs. So that's interesting. That's a really great point. Absolutely. Like, it, it's you still know, the performance. Liar. Yeah. Actually, literally, though, like, her name is like, inspired by that to an extent, too. And the idea of stories uh, as a kind of like, yeah, song and so moving, right? And I, I really, that's definitely something that's at play here. And there's like a line, I don't remember where it is in this chapter somewhere, um, where someone suddenly calls the the mayhem breaking out like uh of the underworld is like a wasteland and there's something else there too mm -hmm. going on like if you were going to talk about different speakers right um that calls back to t.s Eliot's the wasteland and maybe i'll go into this more next episode because i need to reread it though once upon a time i did write an essay on it um <laughs> long 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 ago about the wasteland and cubism anyways Shout out to the Galavespians negotiating skills also and their quick thinking, right? Tiali's like, hits the first point, Salmachia hits the second one, bring them to your business meetings. Amazing. 
Well, there's a ghost in the crowd. An older, angry, passionate man speaks up asking, wait, wait, what's gonna happen if we waltz out of this tunnel? Will we vanish like our demons? Valid question. Very valid. And he says that everyone should refuse to follow these children unless they know what will happen to them. And Lyra doesn't know what she should do and Will's like, why don't you Google it? And by that, he means tell them the truth and ask the alethiometer. This this is one of my favorite passages from the book, honestly. Probably one of like my top five to ten, you know, little quotes. So the answer comes at once, and she says, When you go out of here, all the particles that make you up will loosen and float apart, just like your demons did. If you've seen people dying, you know what that looks like. But your demons ain't just nothing now. They're part of everything. All the atoms that were them. They've gone into the air and the wind and the trees and the earth and all the living things. They'll never vanish. They're just part of everything. And that's exactly what'll happen to you. I swear to you, I promise on my honor. You'll drift apart, it's true, but you'll be out in the open, part of everything alive again. It's a really beautiful sentiment. And, you know, speaking of things that are a huge blow to the authority, I like that it kind of speaks to this idea of, like, omnipresence, right? Being part of everything like everything, right? And I feel like that's kind of an aspect of divinity each in and of itself, and that every single person gets to be that. And, and it, it is beautiful. It's very meaningful, like that it's, that's what they want. No one wants you to live, you know? And mm. your goal is to live. That's the exact goal. And that you will become part of everything that you're missing now, and once more be born into the earth in some sort of way. I mean, I think that's kind of like ticket. If any of them are true, I hope that shit's true, you know? Yeah. Just, like, be reborn into the atmosphere and shit. But not not now. Like, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. Maybe not, like, so close to 2030 or 2040. I don't know if that atmosphere is going to be very kind. You won't feel it. You'll just be like, we're hurting people. No. <laughs> I guess hell could be worse, right? So whatever. Hopefully I'll be a flower for a couple years. That'd be fucking neat. There's a character who's a young woman who dies as a martyr centuries before, and she comes forward saying, We were promised a glorious heaven. Some spent their life in solitary prayer, letting that joy of life go to waste. She then says that the land of dead isn't a place of reward or punishment. It's nothing. The good come here as well as the wicked. And now, Lyra's come offering a way out, and she is going to follow her. She says... Even if it means oblivion, friends, I'll welcome it because it won't be nothing. We'll be alive again in a thousand blades of grass and a million leaves. We'll be falling in the raindrops and blowing in the fresh breeze. We'll be glittering in the dew under the stars and the moon out there in the physical world, which is our true home and always was. And she tells them to follow the child out to the sky. Again, once more, just like book one, Lyra's walking into the sky. Oh, what a girl. Oh, my God. Yes. Mm -hmm. Into the hole she's making now with Will into the sky. Yeah. Out uh, of the ground. I'm I'm definitely reminded of Mary and Marisa when we read this passage, right, of what it means to live. The good come here as well as the wicked, the martyr says about the land of the dead. Marisa is exactly what she speaks of, right? One of those promised paradise and salvation and following the Lord's will. But as we see in these three chapters and in the way that like she didn't really follow what an actual good person would probably do, you know, no Ten Commandments, you know, she was like, thou shalt fuck up children. 
Um, thou shalt kill. <laughs> thou shalt kill. That's the commandment, right? Thou shalt kill. <laughs> Is that? I heard it. Let me just, it's smudged on my hand. What, Can you just? I don't know this word not. <laughs> right. But to be fair, I will say in these three chapters, we've seen immense growth, right? Like she mm. would rather choose to protect when life is threatened and when she realizes it's all bullshit, even though she's not great at her attempt to love Lyra, she chooses that glimpse of fucked up happiness, Lyra, protecting Lyra. And then you think of Mary, who, when she was a nun, she kind of was unhappy, right? Mm. She was very unhappy. She wasn't allowed to have passion. She wasn't allowed to love. What kind of world is that where someone says you can't love? Yeah. She wasn't allowed to live or feel her life. And, and so she a promise that wasn't real. Yeah. So she abandoned that, dedicated herself to a new thing. Well, this other guy comes along. He's he's unwilling to let go of this. He, he's a ghost monk. Shows her out of the way. Uh, calling this child an ancient agent of the evil one himself i don't know about the evil part but he's not wrong in the part where lyra is on the same side as like the satan stand-in that's not wrong and he says that they truly are in the good place and that going with lyra means peril and that he and his true companions would be staying here and people are like i mean you can do that if you want um Really big Emperor's New Clothes vibes, I feel, from this man. But it also, I think, speaks to the like larger themes of the story in regards to experience and trusting one's senses, or, I mean, at least enjoying your senses that come up in this story. Because that other martyr, right, she finds that she has been proven wrong in what she believed in her faith, and when confronted with that evidence by like how miserable the last few centuries have been for her and her ghost, therefore reassesses the world based on this new evidence, which is very much like how science works, right? When new discoveries are made, you reassess and reshift your view based on that. Whereas the monk kind of just refuses to trust or acknowledge his senses, right? Everyone can see, like, you are fucking miserable here, right? But he's just so detached from his experience and his his senses that he's deluded himself and continues to deny himself sensation and joy again. I like that this chick straight up keeps standing up and she's just like, no, this is the bad place. <laughs> this is it. This is the bad place. Oh, My is... God, even Will got it. This is getting embarrassing. Uh, for real, though, it's the bad place. It is, it is the bad place, it is, the bad. is what she's saying. But and it's he's only like, no, the bad it's place. The good place. Yeah, yeah. Well, Which, it, it, I don't want to spoil too much of the show, so. <laughs> watch the good place, you guys. Lyra's bewildered at all this. She's like, maybe I'm making a mistake. It's kind of broken down here, gloomy, but like. My mom looked real cool when I met her, and she wasn't. She sucked, so maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, and I understand that, you know, when you've been, like, subjected to that, or, or like, as, you know, coming back to the Samuel episodes that we're doing, like, as, as Yoke Boy pointed out, right, you start to, like, question your own reality when you've been abused, and mm -hmm. clearly Lyra was by her mother, but also I think part of it is also her remembering how wrong she is about Lord Azrael. She doesn't say it outright, because she doesn't need to, because literally the evidence of how wrong she was about Lord Azrael is right here, next to her. It's Roger, right? And I think there's a part of her that's questioning, like, oh god, am I leading Roger 
to his demise a second time uh, and, and still feeling responsible for his death. Yeah. I appreciate, though, that even though she never voices this, like, this is all internal, Will senses it, and he encourages her. He's like, dude, everyone can see that that monk is lying. Like, they can see it, right? And people are depending on them, so they have to take a step and start to move. And so Lyra trusts her body and her senses and knows Pan would have said the same thing, and off they go, millions of ghosts following them. So, behind all these ghosts, other inhabitants of the world are following, every being ever punished by the authority with exile and death. Yes, HBO music is playing hard right now, right? This is end of the episode kind of thing, because some of these ghosts don't look human at all. Beings like the Mulefa appear, and even stranger ghosts than that. All they can do is follow the harpies. Dun dun dun! So that brings us to chapter 24, Mrs. Coulter in Geneva, which we open with a quote from Ezekiel. As is the mother, so is her daughter. Self-explanatory. I don't think I have to have to tell you about that one. I think it's a pretty self-explanatory quote. I feel like I don't have to explain yeah. it. And <laughs> uh, it, it even becomes even more relevant as the story goes, but that's for the next few chapters. I don't think we'll talk about it that that. Maybe a smidge in the discussion. No, it's to come. It's to come. Keep your ears peeled for next time. But <laughs> we open with Marisa, who has been to the College of St. Jerome three times before and knows the perfect place to hide the intention craft, which she's falling in love with. This is her favorite machine that doesn't use batteries. Wow. I love this Tesla. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Asriel built in any, you know, jets. She's gross. Uh, <laughs> Oh my god. Once settled, she sends her demon to investigate the attic of the tower they landed near, and they find all sorts of item in storage, like furniture. She tiptoes to a door, locked, and she pulls a hairpin out to fix that brief obstacle. Minutes later, they stand on the corridor. Five after that, they've opened a window two floors below in the kitchen pantry and climb out to an alley. They come to the gatehouse of the college because it's very important that they arrive in the orthodox way. Marisa says, no matter how they intend to leave it. They're accosted by a guard immediately, who she actually orders. She's like, show us some courtesy. How dare you? And she tells him that she's there to speak with the president and to let him know. The man falls back to his pincher demon, and they crank the handle of a telephone, and a young priest arrives to meet them, who says he's Brother Louis, the convener of the Secretariat of the Consistorial Court. Marisa wants nothing to do with Brother Lewis. She came here for Father McPhail, and she expects to be taken to him. The brother quails, takes her over to him, and tries to converse but gives up on the way, and he leads her silently to Father McPhail, who is at his devotions. So, when they enter the room, which Father McPhail is most unhappy about this entrance, there is no courtesy offered to Marisa. So, she just, like, advises. She's like, I'm going to take... A glass of chocolate, right? Uh, knowing that it is very insulting to treat this priest as a servant, which power move. Like the entire thing, she's like, we gotta enter the proper way. Power move, right? So Brother Lewis, being outplayed, leaves annoyed to go get her her chocolate milk. <laughs> and the president immediately tells her that she is, of course, under arrest. But she volleys back that, um, actually, I came here of my own volition. 
all right, to give information about Asriel's forces and, of course, the child. So everyone, she's like telling them, you might not know this, but I, in fact, remembered my daughter's birthday. She's 12 now, all right? <laughs> she's going to soon approach the cusp of adolescence, and then there will be nothing that you can do to prevent the catastrophe. And then thanks to the influence of Father McPhail, it's going to come more quickly. You did this. And then he says, well, Marisa, I think it was your duty to bring her to them instead of the mountain cave? And she somehow still turns this all around, but he still goes like, though how a woman of your intelligence hoped to remain hidden is a mystery to me. I love how much he underestimates her. They always do, right? And they highly underestimated her in the next two chapters. And she kind of gets a couple of volleys in this chapter that we'll talk about as we go, but she comments... There must be a great deal of mystery in your life, like the relation <laughs> between a mother and child. I would never release my daughter to men like you, obsessed with sexuality, with dirty fingernails, reeking of sweat. Oh, let him have it. Yeah. Get him. Get him. And then she says this line that like, this is the ultimate get him line. I was excited. Men whose furative imaginations would crawl over her body like cockroaches. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You shame him. Yeah. I... It's it's a fantastic moment and scene, and she's, like, not wrong in the least. I love that she goes for the low blow. She goes for every petty thing, and she's like, your fingernails are dirty! <laughs> right? She stops at nothing. But I will say, when this happens in the television show, it's going to be real weird when Ruth Wilson says this to Will Keen, Daphne Keen's father. Real weird. Real weird. It's gonna be weird. Like, I, I know that it... I think they're gonna deliver it great. They're fantastic actors, but in, like, a meta sense, me think, knowing, I'm like, nah. I do think he's gonna nail it, though. Will oh, yeah. Keen is, like... He's doing He's great. gonna be so... Because right now, President McPhail is so obsessed and, like, lost his mind about it. Like, he's just, like, stopping at nothing. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen him take it to the brink in the His Dark Materials adaptation TV show. So I'm excited to see him really go over the edge. Uh, even in this chapter when he, like, flings his demon into the mesh cage later. I'm like, oh, God, Jesus. Yeah. Or the next chapter, I should say. Yeah. So Brother Lewis brought the chocolatel, and he is not asked to stay, by the way. <laughs> oh, Brother Lewis. And, or maybe, is it Louis? Because they're in the... The French oh, they're in French Alps. Yeah. Brother Louis. Yeah. Frère Louis. Bon. Um, <laughs> so I do want to say that I love that Mrs. Coulter orders chocolatel and internally she doesn't say it aloud. She like thinks like this is terrible chocolatel, <laughs> right? She's like, it's a watered down, terrible quality. And she thinks of it in terms of like how these priests are denying themselves the pleasure of enjoying it, of, of any sort of, like, sensation in that way. Mm-hmm. And I really like how it brings us around, like, she, she thinks of this idea of tempting later on, but it brings us around to, like, Chocolatel as sort of standing in as, like, temptation and, I don't know, maybe also a stand-in for, like, fruit, right? That idea of sweetness. And it is, after all, what Mrs. Coulter used to tempt and lure children to their doom. Thou shalt kill. Yeah, there's even a little bit of this used in La Belle Sauvage that we oh, talked about yeah. in our La Belle Sauvage episodes. No spoilers. But uh, the other thing about this is, like, the Magisterium is kind of using everything against her that was hers in these two oh, chapters. Yeah, yeah. 
Lyra, first of all. Uh, second of all, the bomb and it being connected to her machinery is True. like her invention being used against her. Uh, so I, I find that really interesting that all of this is her own methodology yeah. just being pitted at her. And she knows. She showed up and she knows what they're doing for the most part. And yeah. she gets to find out about it. As each pin drops, she's like, oh, interesting. My invention. Interesting. My daughter. Interesting. My locket. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They, yeah, they needed her to do all the hard work. And then, and how then they just give her a low-quality chocolatel. They hope Classless. Classless. <laughs> Tacky. Tacky and I hate them. <laughs> Marisa wanted to keep Lyra safe until the danger passed, she said. Somewhere there's a tempter, a serpent, and she must keep them from meeting. Besides, they're not with Azriel, who's undoubtedly looking for them, and specifically the boy with the magic knife. The president wondered why she was smiling. Surely she didn't approve of this wretched boy. Proud of Will, who makes a great impression on both of Lyra's parents, both of whom are murderers in different way. By that, I mean Mrs. Coulter and York Burnison. Good job, Will. <sighs> so she thought this was brand new information for them, right? Like she was like, all my new info is going to pay off well, but he reveals that Fra Pavel actually knew all this already and she's like well that's much quicker than usually usually it takes him a month to read that in his little alethiometer interesting, <laughs> interesting. the president is like well tell me everything about asriel and she tells him not everything but a substantial amount of truth and he's like well how'd you get here and this is where the lies start back up she says i took a gyropter most of the way abandoning it when i ran out of fuel and walking the rest of the way Smart. Very smart to have lied about that. It is smart of her to lie about that. Absolutely. The president tells her what he has pieced together, right? That Asriel is after the knife, and it's called the God Destroyer, according to the cliff gas, and then is aiming to destroy the authority, right? He's aiming to attack and dethrone God, and many already claim God is dead, you know, coming back to probably... He's like, yeah, we have Nietzsche in this world, I don't know. But presumably... Asriel is not one of those people who believe that because he is still out there trying to like literally kill God. And I just I just want to like call out cheers for my homies, the Cliff Gas. Love those little Muppet <laughs> babies. Um Mrs. Coulter's. Well, I mean, if he is alive, like where is God? And why doesn't he speak anymore, right? He used to be very involved. He used to speak with humans, Adam and Eve, Moses. And then he became aged, the Ancient of Days, by the time of Daniel. Where is he now? Is he still alive, decrepit, demented, unable to die? And wouldn't killing him be a mercy? And then it like really feels intoxicating for Mrs. Coulter to speak to this man in this manner. I love it for her because she's like, you know what? Hell hath no fury like me. Yes. First of all. True. Second true, true. of all, it's just not worth it anymore. Like, she's obviously kind of hit a turning point and, like, she's smiling about Will, which I'm sure launched, like, milfy fanfics everywhere across the fandom. Ugh. I don't check AO3. But I don't, I don't want wanna that. You want to look it up real quick. I don't want you that. You don't want that? You don't want to read that, Eliana? Some sick fuckers are out there that have written that. And I respect the fuck out of those people. I, I but, am, as you know, I'm like, Mrs. Coulter should be with someone else for just one night stand. I really hope that she does fall for someone, you know? I think it could be really sweet. Oh my god, I hate you. <laughs> I love that she's challenging God. 
Uh, she's smiling about Will and Lyra. I'm sure Will and Lyra's defiance is reminding her a little bit of younger her and Asriel. Oh, right? Yeah, she felt yeah. free. I mean, being married to Mr. Coulter obviously wasn't a dream because Asriel made her heart race a little bit faster, you know, touched her thigh a little bit, got her a little, oh, I like a boy. Uh, with Asriel's willfulness as a person, like that was like her breaking and tasting the forbidden fruit, literally. Right? When she, you know, cheated on her husband. Uh, yeah. Mm. And now she's really suffered in this position and just taken so much shit from the church, from people around her, when she's just trying to girl boss out there. You know, she's trying to girl boss too close to the sun and no one's letting her. So I, I like that she gets easy digs this yeah. time. She's trying I to really girl do. boss. She's trying to gaslight. Her daughter's out here. Oh, girl, she gaslit. Yeah, her daughter's out here teaching harpies how to gatekeep, you know, like. (laughs) Absolutely, though. Um, I I, I had a thought of that, you know, Asriel as that forbidden fruit. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, her life was probably monotonous. She followed the formula before him, and she was just a bright girl that married right. Maybe, you know, exploited some uh, traveling between worlds in her time in between. But, uh, yeah, she, I I think Asriel was kind of her wake up, like her bit of lust that woke her up, her desire. Mm -hmm. And then she tried to feed that desire with ambition instead. Mm. But it did not satiate those lustful flames, did it, my friend? Yeah, and part of that is her world, right? You can have both, Mm -hmm. but not, I guess, in this world. But also, she chose, like, the wrong career track, I guess, for that, too. Um, yeah. The Murdering church? children religiously? Oh, that, too. <laughs> the church? So, Marisa doesn't get away with her smart mouth for as long as she'd like. Uh, McPhail volleys back, and he's like, oh, so what do you think about dust? And she's like, well, I don't know what it is. No one does. And he's like, well, that's great. But, by the way, you are still under arrest, as you'll remember I said. As you'll see in my previous emails, you're under arrest. And he rings for email. brother Louis to come lock her up in the best guest room they have, which is shabby, cheap furniture, but it's clean. Love that she notes that. Shabby, cheap furniture, kind of tacky, but it's clean. It'll do. Uh, and she looks around the room immediately and finds two microphones in there, and she disconnects the fuck out of them. And then she finds that Lord Roke is watching her from the chest of drawers. And she scolds him a little playfully, saying, oh, when were you going to reveal you were here when I was naked? Uh, And her demon is menacing all the while. The monkey is very menacing during this. And he's like, well, you control your demon, Jesus. He's here because of Asriel, right? Uh, As soon as she arrived, the magisterium set to doing some sort of crazy anbaric work in the cellars, and her presence greatly motivated them. And she doesn't know whether to be alarmed or flattered, but she definitely is tired. Yes. I feel, so this is what I mean, like, I feel like this encounter between Mrs. Coulter and Lord Broke is, like, it's pretty flirty, alright? And, and, like, even this part, still flirty, because she's like, alright, well, you can just keep watch then while I sleep. And then off to bed they go, except for Lord Broke, he stays awake because, again, he's watching. And he doesn't, like, give her any updates on Azrael's camp, right? He has been holding back. The Allies had been tracking flight paths in the air over the Republic and had noticed a few groups of activities, something that may be angels and something else entirely out west. Their investigations so far, though, have yielded no results, but he found it better not to worry Mrs. Coulter on this one, which, yeah, why not? Um, about an hour into the night, 
Brother Louis uh, breaks into Mrs. Coulter's room, tiptoeing around, very creepy, and looking for her belongings on her bedside. Roke is poised in the shadows, ready for action, and Louis finds what he's looking for, but it is unfortunately still connected to Mrs. Coulter. He begins to lower his shaking hand to the golden locket around Maurice's neck. Roke heads to the door, ready to tail Brother Louis, and follows him to the president's room. McPhail is in his room with Fra Pavel and Dr. Cooper and an experimental theologian from Bolvanger. McPhail congratulates Louis on bringing the locket and they all bend to watch him open it, pulling out a lock of dark gold hair and twisting it in his fingers. Brother Louis asks if he can know why did we steal the child's hair? But President McPhail says no, that is above your pay grade. I don't think they pay him. I don't know how uh, how Be gone, it works. Thought. Yeah, pretty much. That's literally what president mcphail does um he's like replace what you stole lord rogue thinks of following him out but then he's like no i should find out what they're up to and we have this moment of like how did you know where she had it said the scientist every time she mentioned the child the president said her hand went to the locket and i'm like okay like I get it, but to be honest, like, I I also agree, like, with the question of, like, how did they know she had some of Lyra's hair in that locket? Like, literally, that locket could have held nothing. Like, how did they know she had any of Lyra's hair? Did I miss something? I I mean, I guess probably because she just kept touching it. Yeah. Like, like, talking about Lyra, and they just assumed. But, like, how would they assume that she just had the hair? Is yeah. this a common thing? Is this like a common thing? Did mothers just keep a lock of their daughter's hair ever? I don't... Is it? I mean, like, I guess I see it, like, come up every now and then in things, but I'm like, how do they know it's not just, like, a photo of her? You know? Mm. Well, speaking know. of things that we haven't heard about in a while on that, right? <laughs> really weird. Yeah, I don't know. It's really weird. I, 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 maybe the hair thing's like an old-fashioned thing. It's a big but... jump. It's a big assumption. It's a big assumption, but they got very lucky on this one. <laughs> they did. <laughs> Real lucky. And they discussed the hair that it needs to be placed inside of a resonating chamber and go through a series mm. of ambaric pulses using the Barnard Stokes heresy, the many worlds idea. So this is kicking it all the way back to the Northern Lights Chapter 2. Chapter 2. A city in another world, no doubt, said the dean with contempt in his voice. Lord Asriel ignored him. There was a stir of excitement among some of the scholars, as if, having written treatises on the existence of the unicorn without ever having seen one, they'd been presented with a living example, newly captured. Is this the Barnard Stokes business? said the Palmerian professor. Mm. It is, isn't it? That's what I want to find out, said Lord Asriel. So the many worlds theories is what we're talking about to kick it back to that book. The doctor doesn't bring too much heresy in, which I thought was really interesting how he's a little afraid. And the president was like, it doesn't matter. We're past that. You you could just be a heretic in front of me, basically. You know, like he straight up was like, oh, we're performing heresies now for pride. Heresies for pride. (sighs) And he's already heard about all these other worlds through Pavel. So heresies out the door now. It's not a thing. They discuss that the force of the bomb will be directed by the hair, so that when the bomb's detonated, the child will be destroyed wherever she is. The hydroambaric generating station they had had been requisitioned just for their use to create the amount of power needed to blast through worlds and also murder Lyra. 
McPhail directs Cooper to leave at once to his room because a storm's on his way and they kind of need to, you know, get ready to go, get out of there, go get to the station. The scientist takes the hair and bows out and Lord Roke silently follows him, once out of earshot of the president's room, springs, stabbing him with his poisonous spur, taking the envelope and running to Coulter's room, slipping through. He wakes her up, telling her what happened, saying that she needs to destroy the envelope, but the men said even one single hair would be enough. Coulter examines it, though, and says, This is only part of the lock of hair. I can tell. They took part of it. They must have kept some. Yeah. You know, speaking of these men being very interested in Lyra's body, here's part of it, I guess, kind of, if you consider your hair part of your body. Um, And, yeah, they begin to discuss urgently how to get the rest of Lyra's hair back and that they must seek the bomb, but then the monkey shushes them, goes, shh, um, warning them that someone comes. Mrs. Coulter thrusts it all at Roke, who leaps to the wardrobe and hides. And I I just thought that was really interesting, right? Like, the monkey shushing them, going, shh. Yeah, you know, we commented a, a couple episodes ago when it said something. We hadn't really noticed that it was speaking, you know, it doesn't speak often. I think there's only one or two times it speaks, but it also shushes. He shushes people. That's amazing. He's not completely nonverbal. He is present. He is here. Yeah, he is present. He is here. <laughs> he is good. He is grateful. Um... <laughs> the president enters, accusing Mrs. Coulter of attacking the scientist. And she struggles to sit up, puts on a performance, but also she like really did more or less just wake up. Right, like it's obvious that she has never left her bed this this evening. Not in general. Mood. Um, yeah, I was like mood. Uh, and the president says that she must then have an accomplice who had attacked his guest, and she says she isn't the faintest clue. And also, oh my god, why is her locket on her pillow? Because of course, Louis did not have the stones to put it back on her. Not one bit, and. and- this is great. I love Lord Roke then saw a superb piece of acting. Yeah, he's like, BAFTA, she, BAFTA! This is such a BAFTA. Marisa, like, lifts herself up and she's like, I'm just gonna mirror his emotions and she's just as bewildered as McPhail and she's like, I have no accomplice. If there's an invisible assassin in this place, I can only imagine it's the devil himself and I dare say he feels quite at home and I would like to speak to your manager is basically what she just said. McPhail then turns to the guard and says, put her in chains, send her down to the cellars. Coulter meets Roke's eye just for a moment, and he catches her expression, knowing exactly, exactly what Marisa means for him to do. Whoa. Teamwork makes the dream work. Teamwork. I do love that Marisa uses all she can in these chapters of, like, her womanhood to protect her, right? Mm. Accusing them of touching her body while she slept. They've been inappropriate with her because a woman's virtue, if they are Christians, is supposed to be important, right? Christian, yes. Christians. (laughs) And, and, you know, attacking not just that, but their reputation in turn as holy men. Like, she's trying to attack their reputation. But that said, it's not enough. None of these Mm-mm. are enough protections for her in this scenario. Mm-mm. Yeah. They need to be more praise be to he, you know. <laughs> praise be to he. Praise be to he. This is now a right... I was going to say at the start, is this a Righteous Gemstones episode? Kind of. It kind of is. 
<laughs> I would love Father McPhail I mean, to step on in to an episode of Gemstones. With all the church and like killing stuff going on in this chapter, it kind and of the is. Money. Yeah, and the money, like it, it kind of is. Praise be to he. <laughs> y'all, y'all gotta watch the Righteous Gemstones He's if like, you aren't watching it. Christian it's very power good. couple. <laughs> Oh my god it's us we're gonna open a resort baby yeah joe jo- uh, jonas and his wife they never say her name interestingly it's like i don't know if there's like a contract thing with that too um, i was thinking that yeah. and then i'm like when are we gonna get all the jonases when's sophie coming on when are we getting them i don't know if she's gonna yeah but i feel like kevin would make sense on it anyway <gasps> kevin is brother louis or joe jonas is brother louis these are thoughts um anyway so Unfortunately, this is not yet a Righteous Gemstones podcast. We are going to chapter 25 of The Amber Spyglass. C'est Jean Lezo. The opening header line for that one is A bracelet of bright hair about the bone from John Donne. Yeah, The Relic by John Donne. Three stanzas. Hmm. Oh, this is a good one. This is... I'm not going to read you the whole poem. I beg you to go seek it out, but it's called The Relic, and it is a hurtful poem. (laughs) I won't comment too much on it, but I was like, oh, I see. Oh, I see. So basically it starts, and the first stanza, the speaker says that he will someday die, right? Like, he sees his death coming and that it's imminent, and so he wraps his lover's hand around his wrist, and then he gets a piece of her hair. Right, and he's like, I want this. I'm going to wrap this around my wrist. So many years later, when the bones have all gone, he's dug up, right? They're going to place some other body in his spot because it's been many years and the bones are already gone and blah, 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 decomposing. And all they find of what's left of the bones is the piece of hair wrapped around the bone. So that shows like his lover's power, that his lover has lasted through all these years. And that she surpassed time while his bones did not. And he speaks in the next stanzas kind of of how like many people would call this a miracle. Speak of a great miracle and prophecy of this piece of hair surviving over time. Many, many shadows would be seen on it if we had the amber spyglass. But he says that the miracle would not be that the hair survived, but the real miracle was their love. Right? The entire time. Yeah, yeah, I see you, Eliana, exactly. The real miracle was that their love lasted this entire time, that even after bones are gone and after you've gone into the atmosphere, the hair was left. What does it mean? What does it all mean, Eliana? What does I don't know, mean? I'm just big sad now. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry that I analyzed this poem. Oh my god, are you crying, Eliana? Are you in, crying? In, Did I do my, it? Into my hair. <laughs> actually incidentally <laughs> my instinct is to pull my hair over my eyes <laughs> uh, yeah so that's depressing it is depressing but for I no mean, reason it's okay we're here on uh, a regular alps vacation oh my god <laughs> pack your snow gear snow yep. bunnies we're going skiing so we have this line of the cataract of saint jean le plunged between pinnacles of rock at the eastern end of a spur of the Alps, and the generating station clung to the side of the mountain above it. It was a wild region, a bleak and battered wilderness, and no one would have built anything there at all, had it not been for the promise of driving 
great and barred generators with the power of the thousands of tons of water that roared through the gorge. Wow, that's that's a metaphor, right? We've seen a lot of those uh, kind of places in our own world, I would say. And I'm sure the UK probably has it too, where it's like you just have great industrial buildings that are only there to, you know exist to work and power things with tons of electricity and use up all this power and resources and space to create whatever that's very interesting very yeah. industrial industrial wasteland and i will say like regarding the name right it comes when you were bringing it up like that first header at the top of uh chapter 23 is from saint john and this one is i guess saint john of the water and i guess there's like a bunch of water here and I, that's mm-hmm. like what that name means but I don't know why it says St. John the Water and not St. John of the Water anyway mm. that's all <laughs> um, so a zeppelin hovers near the station near the water and the pilot is carefully moving through the storm because he doesn't want to you know fatally wreck at the building the pilot shouts they can't really get closer if they want to land, and MacPhail is frustrated and tells him, just just put us below the ridge. So the crew repairs to more. The president's frustrated, waiting. And at the rear of the cabin, Lord Roke, semi-hiding, semi-not, uh, in plain sight, is waiting. And so is Mrs. Coulter, awake, silent, on the other side of the aisle, her demon watching everyone, exuding malice. Love Whoa. that. Yes, exuding. Lord Roke takes a chance, darting over to tell her what he's learned. And she kind of asks, she's like, are you going to stay with me or are you going to work on your own? And he stays. He gets in her fur-lined pocket, hiding under her coat. The monkey helps to make sure he's hidden in the coat. And not a minute later, a soldier comes to accompany them out of the ship. Coulter asks, must I wear these horrible handcuffs? And tries to manipulate her way out of them. But the younger soldier will not budge. I love Lord Roke in her breast pocket. It reminds me of Pan in his airmine kind of form, getting in the, the pocket mm. of Lyra's coats. Yeah, or even like as a mouse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even if Lord Roke is in her pocket, Mrs. Coulter is acting out of pocket oh my God. these chapters. <laughs> Fuck. What's <laughs> wrong with you? <laughs> so much, so much. Um, they head down the gangway, and the soldier tells her that the head sergeant is the one with the keys anyway, and Lord Roke and Mrs. Coulter are like, mm, teamwork. They both quietly spring into action, because he knows what to do, and they try to figure out which guard and which key they need. Once decided, it's a short key with black tape wound around it, and Lord Roke climbs down to go retrieve the key. And then, of course, there's a commotion, because of course there is. Um, and the guard drops his flashlight. Lord Roke stabs a spur into the guy, no one noticing the weather, and like... The metallic din of like because there's like a lot of machinery going on i guess it's a dam right this is like a dam essentially and he works quickly to get the keys the other guy comes to check in on the sergeant and roke is forced to stab that guy too <laughs> oh, oh no the oh, red no. shirts yes and, and you know this is kind of like the water version of azriel's hell right his little hellacious rebellion mm, setup yeah. it's the water version the song uh, of water and fire <laughs> so roke finds the key just as the group kind of finds the fallen men <laughs> mm. oops and he hurries back to marisa he's caught in the middle of the floodlight totally like fantastic mr fox style <laughs> caught in the middle of the floodlight fox and headlights and freezes 
Thankfully, everyone's preoccupied with all those men he stabbed, and so he gets the key to Coulter, hurries to her shoulder, asks where the bomb is, and off they go. He tells her, hide yourself, and he plans to keep watch as the scene unfolds in front of them. The president is shouting over the engines to give some sort of order to the whole mystery of the, you know, poisonously stabbed men, and Marisa remembers a time not too long ago that she had been stabbed by Chevalier Tialis. Hmm. The horrible pain, the hallucinations, she keeps climbing up thinking about them, up the rocks. The engineers kind of are struggling at the edge of the gorge, bringing power to the bomb, and Coulter is reassessing the scenario. Getting out of the situation isn't really the problem, it's more getting Lyra's hair out. Roke burns the rest of the hair after her arrest earlier on, but he wasn't really able to go find where the other half is. But they know where it is now. It's in the resonating chamber on the bomb, and this is going to be hard. There are scientists going back and forth. There's bright lights over there. Uh, they have one last chance to get rid of the hair, which will be even harder because of what the president intends to do with Mrs. Coulter. Because, you see, the energy of the bomb comes from somewhere very special. It comes from cutting the link between human and demon. He was going to sever the monkey and Coulter and use that power to destroy Lyra, using the very technology Coulter invented. And her hope, her only hope was Roke, but that was bleak because in their exchanges over the last 24 hours, she learned that every time he stabs, his venom weakens. It would take at least a day to build it back up. I will say that I admire that Mrs. Coulter recognized, she's like, yeah, I guess there is some delicious irony in that too. You know, the the, the whole plan that they had set up where her death yes. would cause the death of her daughter. She's like, all right, that was mildly clever. Uh, I mean, That's what I, I would have done. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, okay, I feel that, yeah. The engineers rig up a series of lights, pulling cables to the bombs, which would take about, you know, a five-minute climb towards the bomb, and meanwhile, the president rallies soldiers at the Zeppelin. Mrs. Coulter eyeballs the mesh cages, the silver blade hanging above. She sees no principle behind the rest of the coils and jars and tubing, but she knows that below... There's a lock of hair that the entire system depends upon. Another soldier gets the stab from Lord Roke, and to Mrs. Coulter's dismay, the president calls into the sky a witch, shouting for her to search for the creature that is helping the woman. The witch tells him that something else is coming and that she can see it in the north, but the president's like, don't, don't look at that, don't worry about that right now. We have to find the creature and destroy it, but also look for the woman too. Having the witch there to try to take out Coulter, I, I find that so interesting, right? Because we've seen Coulter torture witches in the past, and also considering her own fiery nature, because as Lyra brought up at the front of the chapter, Ma Costa said she had witch oil in her blood, that she was born of fire. And Marisa Coulter, Lyra is definitely her daughter. Definitely. There is a bit coming up where, like, she sends her demon down to pick up Roke, and she seems that she's pretty far up all of the rocks. So I'm curious what the demon travel distance is. Like, what is, is it 6 feet, 12 feet? I don't know. Maybe we'll never find out. But I'm just curious. The fact the church is willing to sacrifice Marisa is kind of icing on the cake, right? That they're, like, willing to use her to exploit her, to gain Lyra. But would they gain something? I, as we've discussed before, am in the camp that maybe Marisa is already severed, right? Maybe, maybe that's already something. And maybe this is more something to chat about in the discussion. I don't know. I just don't know. It would have been really funny, though, 
had they operated or done the uh, done the intercision with marisa and then she's sitting there and she's like well that was so fun what a gas and she just is smiling like oh i was already severed darling what the fuck do you think but that's also like not how the bomb works too it still would find lyra it seems maybe if they had enough energy so i don't know i don't know i don't know interesting i was i was kind of wondering that right because we've been having that discussion and you've been bringing it up i think she's got something like a witch I guess, like, as you said, right, that sort of, like, witch disconnect, but that's not exactly the same as, like, a complete severing. severing. Yeah, like, there's still obviously, like, a connection there, so maybe it would work, but because obviously, like, Mrs. Culture's like, I'm not taking that risk, right? Like, she she knows enough that she's like, I'm not risking Mm -hmm. being severed, being submitted to what I've submitted all these children to, but also, like, risking powering the bomb, so... Well, and that's interesting too, right? She's not a clean sacrifice. Like, just putting it out there, it's not like taking a baby lamb and putting it on an altar. It's like, Marisa's hands are not clean. You're intending it as some great sacrifice. Obviously, you're not intending it as some great sacrifice for your big god, because you wouldn't sacrifice Marisa. Well, they wanted the poetry of it, like George Lucas style. Well, and exactly, that's it, right? Like, this is evil. It's not good. It's not done in the name of the Lord. And while they've, like, exposed and exploited her love for Lyra, they're also underestimating the lengths that she's willing to go. Like, the relic states at the chapter start, right? Like, that locket, that lock of hair, Lyra, that's everything to her now. She has nothing else to lose. I mean, I think that's, like, the biggest part on which, like, this chapter turns, right? That that is everything to her, as you said, right? Like, she tries so hard. She, like, gives everything that she has in this moment to try and prevent that bomb from going off, and she cares so much and is, like, basically almost dies. She risks everything to try and stop that bomb from going off. Well, Lord Roke was once more in plain sight. He's lying in the open on a patch of moss, unmoving. Fortunately, like, the bad people don't see him. She sends her demon to crawl down the rocks and get him, conspicuous to anyone's eye, but Father McPhail and the others, they are too busy looking at the bomb. Too busy. (laughs) We have this line of, The president turned to look over his shoulder and she saw his expression. It was so fixed and intense that he looked more like a mask than a man. His lips were moving in prayer, his eyes were turned up wide open as the rain beat into them, and altogether he looked like some gloomy Spanish painting of a saint in the ecstasy of martyrdom. Mrs. Coulter felt a sudden bolt of fear, because she knew exactly what he intended. He was going to sacrifice himself. The bomb would work whether or not she was part of it. The monkey brings Roke back. His left leg is broken from being stepped on. (laughs) He tells her to listen carefully, explaining how to get into the resonating chamber and to retrieve the hair. Suddenly an arrow whooshes past, hitting a tree in front of them, and it's the witch. (sighs) She's such a witch. Um, Anyways, (laughs) so the severity of the situation and, like, really the gravity, right, with which Mrs. Coulter and Lord Roke take this task is very clear by the fact that Mrs. Coulter was... Like, her monkey demon makes direct contact with Lord Roke, and, I mean, it's probably, like, a small amount of, I guess, the monkey. It's still very important, though, right? Because, like, I mean, proportionally, it's probably a large amount of Lord Roke. Yeah. It's very intimate, right? Like, I mean, 
And, and that, like Lord Roke didn't yeah. go down with them, so he doesn't know everything they've learned. The other Galavespians have learned, right? Yeah, but like, true. But that doesn't mean it's not intimate. It is intimate for the demon too. I mean, he doesn't like to touch anyone. Yeah, he and doesn't I think like anyone. He's probably spent enough time with Lord Azrael to like understand like this is taboo, and like she is risking it to save his life. I think it does speak volumes for where Coulter is as well with Roke that she has come to really trust him. You see kind of that she's turned that as well. Like, she's definitely turned a new leaf on that, that she and Roke have a partnership in this. Yeah, it's like, yeah, partnership in this and, like, an aligned goal. And and respect, right, um, as comrades. Well, Mrs. Coulter does some cool action shit, right? She rolls away before she can get hit. And then everything happens all at once, right? A burst of gunfire, a cloud of flameless smoke, and then... The witch flies directly from Mrs. Coulter, and they wrestle among the rocks, and the monkey, like, works to tear out, like, the needles from her pine cloud branch, from her cloud pine oh. branch, which is kind of, like, funny of a scene when you think about it, because I imagine, like, the monkey just tearing at, like, this, like, tree branch. Yeah, it does say that she, like, takes her raggedy-ass broom and tries to get on it after this. It's pretty yeah. funny. Um, but it, it makes me think of the sh- what the show's kind of done with the mm, cloud pine, which yes. if you're looking for a reason to want to watch a show, part of the cloud pine is in the witch's body. And so yes. we actually, there's a scene where a witch gets tortured with it coming out of her, which gives me the heebie-jeebies and, and makes me think, honestly, it makes me think of this story that a friend told me about getting her nipple pierced and that the nerve was hanging mm. out of her nipple after. Oh no, I think I, you've told me about that. Yeah, oh. and she, yeah, we've talked oh, about God. this. And she puked and shit at the same time. It was awful, awful. So that's really what that makes me think of. And that's what I think I'm imagining every time that the cloud pine now comes up. So, yep, enjoy that one uh, for your brain right now. This is a great moment, though, to see the loyalties conflicting between witches, that not all witches are following Asriel, not all witches are following the Magisterium, right? People see protection through them, but yet they're dying all the same when it comes to the Magisterium. So, <sighs> there are some people, too, you see, like, with this witch, obviously the president and them are so far gone, they don't heed her ancient wisdom, Right? Her warning that she tries to give them. She tells them something's coming from the north. Something's coming. Uh, and they don't listen to her. And she dies at the fall to the Magisterium fighting for them. Uh, just because she joined them for protection. And her demon is a seagull. We haven't done a demon corner in a while. But mm. I thought it was interesting that her demon's a seagull. Because they're like kind of an ultimate scavenger in some ways. They gather where they can be fed easiest. Right? So she can be fed easiest here with the Magisterium. And, and even part of Gull, I mean, th- there's etymology stemming from Welsh and Cornish roots for Gull, but also the word gullible comes from a Gull because oh, really? a Gull is someone who will swallow anything thrown at him. I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So she is, you know, she went with the Magisterium thinking that that would be her protection. And it's devastating because she dies. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, you know, she could also, I, I guess, as you said, right, she was gullible. But like, She could die for good, though, even though they promised good, but she could yeah. die for better. Yeah, and like that she was very instrumental, I guess, to the death of Lord Roke. And like, I mean, I, it is interesting that it is a seagull because, I mean, you brought up like these really great connections, whereas for some reason, my thought was like, first of all, just as pigeons are the rats of the sky, seagulls are just like beach pigeons. But also, 
you know, earlier we talked about Monsters, Inc. and Pixar, and, like, I mine. think of the scene in Finding Nemo mine. with the seagulls. Mine. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's mine. this. That's this scene. That's not this scene. Elliot. No, it's this scene. <laughs> I don't think this is. So the next Pixar scene we get is the president throwing his lizard demon into a small mesh cage. Shireen, no. He <laughs> rides, screams, and kicks, but he strikes her off his hand all the same, shutting the door, slamming it shut. This is horrible. Daphne yeah. Keene's dad, why? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. The witch's demon flies down and seizes the gal of Espion. The witch tears herself out of Coulter's grasp. Snatching her nasty-ass pine branch, leaping to the sky with her demon. My. Coulter actions after her. Oh, my God. Coulter hurls herself toward the bomb, feeling some sort of ferocious gas begin to attack her. It's tear gas. Most of the soldiers have fallen or stumbled away, choking, and she wonders, where'd this gas come from? The wind disperses it, though, and they're able to all try to get back to the bomb. Oh, it's from Azriel. Uh, very fortunate, I guess, for her yeah. that it dispersed. It must have been from Asriel. Yeah. They get interrupted by a scream and a falling of limbs, silk, and twigs. The witch falls, injured, but only just alive, at the feet of Father MacPhail. Coulter immediately seeks Lord Roke, but he didn't survive the fall. Boo. That is sad. His spur is deep in the witch's neck, and the witch's mouth moves, saying something, coming, something, but it makes no sense, and the president's already stepping over her fallen body to reach the larger mesh cage. His demon is scuttling around, crying for pity up and down. <laughs> Damn. It's, it's... There's a lot happening in these moments. I am really sad about Lord Rogue dying. He seemed cool. I, I, I like the Galavespians, you know? They're very noble characters. The monkey leaps for Father MacPhail, climbing up his shoulders to get to the wires and pipework and trying to get Lyra's hair out, and the president tries to grab him, which is very interesting, right? Again, shows the desperation that he's willing to break that taboo, but Mrs. Coulter tries to pull him away, unable to see anything. Gunfire begins all around them, and the president and Mrs. Coulter fight hand to hand. She's tired, he's strong, but she's desperate too, and she tries to watch her demon while she holds him back. But unfortunately, a blow hits her in the head, and she falls stunned. The president scoops himself, bleeding into the larger cage, and shuts himself in. The monkey opens the chamber, the hair within, held in rubber pads and a metal clasp, and Mrs. Coulter hauls herself up with him, getting into everything herself, and tries to, like, displace the parts and shake things before the president can ignite it. There was a flash of intense white, a lashing crack, and the monkey's form was flung high in the air. With him came a little cloud of gold. Was it Lyra's hair? Was it his own fur? Whatever it was, it blew away at once in the dark. Coulter's right hand convulsed so tightly it clung to the mesh, leaving her half lying, half hanging, while her head rang and her heart pounded. But something had happened to her sight. A terrible clarity had come over her eyes. The power to see the most tiny details, and they were focused on the one detail in the universe that mattered. Stuck to one of the pads of the clasp in the resonating chamber, there was a single dark gold hair. She cried a great wail of anguish and shook and shook the cage, trying to loosen the hair with the little strength she had left. <sighs> Mrs. Coulter has done an enormously great effort in this chapter. 
It's done a lot. And I, I really love this moment where he calls out, right? Like, where the story wonders, is it the monkey's hair or is it Lyra's hair that's flying in the wind? Um, in that moment where everyone's, like, electrocuted. Uh, and we realize for the first time that Lyra's hair is the exact same color as the monkey's for it to be so indistinguishable. And I think it really goes to show that Mrs. Coulter's love for her child, yes, it's warped, it's toxic, it's harmful, it's abusive, and none of it was like good for Lyra at all. And I don't mean for this to excuse any of that, but ultimately it was very much inextricably a part of her core. It was, it was part of, you can see it on her demon. That was brilliant i had never thought of that i had never even like connected the two i would even say that's golden wow <laughs> you were you're proud of that i'm proud of you i'm proud of you thank chloe you. thank you well i was proud of thank that you. i wanted to answer it with something just as excellent <laughs> i didn't have much else though so this Stay is it. golden uh, i do find it interesting so now that she's up close with all of the elements right already into place the the blade the metal alloy of the blade mm. is already there getting ready to come down has not come down yet mm. but she's still seeing those details yeah. that clearly so it's not unlike when mary started to climb the tree oh interesting. she's climbed up the yeah. mesh cage but mary climbing the tree with the amber spyglass and being able to see moats floating around this is kind of what it seems like she's doing she yeah. can see the moats just because the elements are kind of near. And that, like, adrenaline. And, I, and now that you say it like that, and, like, having these connections between, like, the goldenness, then, of mm -hmm. Lyra's hair, the monkey's fur, and the goldenness and of dust. dust. Yeah. And, like, and there's, like, really, I mean, very, a lot of intense imagery in the scene, especially, like, during this one break in this chapter where then you contrast, like, of course, the goldenness of Mrs. Coulter, the monkey, and then... The, the cold silver of the blade as Cutting it comes down. Yeah. Ugh. And it does, right? Uh, the president is still praying and she's hurling herself at the cage. Saying praise to, be to he in that cage. Praise be to he. <laughs> uh, she's trying to break the cage down to know nothing and he brings together two wires and the blade shoots down. Something explodes, but Coulter's beyond feeling it because hands are lifting her up out of the wreckage. It's Asriel's hands, into the intention craft amidst smoke and cries of alarm. He climbs in beside her, Stelmaria as well, the half-stunned monkey in her mouth. <laughs> Coulter manages to ask if the president's dead, if it went off, and she looks down the mountain slope through tired, pained eyes where men are running like ants, some lying dead, others crawling brokenly. There's something interesting in the parallel that the last time we saw that huge bomb go off and use a bunch of power to blast through multiple worlds, it was Asriel. And here, he's the one rescuing Coulter instead, right? Putting an end to the equipment being used, flaming it all down. That's an interesting character development on Asriel. Um, to be fair, don't know if he, you know, if I'm, I'm cool with him just flaming a bunch of people. Like, not all those people were bad. Some of them were just caught up in bad things. Uh, I guess that's kind of the whole story of the book, right? Value I mean, of he's life. He's willing to kill kids, so. <laughs> right, right. But, like, then there's that other part of, like, science, right? Like, this scientific mm. evil that could be progressing to kill more people if this gets perfected, this atomic fucking hair bomb. So the fact that he does burn it is probably for the greater good. But it's like, who are you to decide that mm. value of life? Mm -hmm. Yada, yada. God, yada, yada. You know, the whole themes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
But nonetheless, he's rescuing Coulter. He's putting an end to that equipment. And Marisa, uh, it's interesting because not unlike Lyra, who had all this guilt last time, right? When, when a big bomb went off and killed her best friend, and now she's in the underworld just to catch you up. Marisa not only brought Lord Roke and brought him to his end and his danger, but also danger to Lyra, right? What was the stake here? The stakes were Lyra's possibly living or death and Lord Roke's living or death. And Lord Roke's dead. She's alive, thankfully. One person survived. We don't know if Lyra's alive. We do not know. I don't know what to tell you about the next chapter. I'm worried that we have a funeral in chapter 26. I'm very uh-huh. worried, but... At least she doesn't have to travel far. Asriel <laughs> uh, also obviously still cares about her because he sh- he was very amused at her behavior. When she stole the intention craft, he yeah. was like, yeah, we'll catch up with her later. And here he is showing up and saving her, collecting his equipment and his spy slash prisoner. There's also something interesting about like their demons still having that intimacy of like, let me just grab you in my mouth, honey. Come on. Uh, very interesting. You know, it's obvious that he still has the intimacy going on in his soul for her and vice versa. And in his dick, probably, for her. Mm, yes, uh, yes. And I love that when you look at, like, their last meeting in the first book, uh, before all this, back in the first book, when they're arguing mountaintop and Lyra's escaping into the other world, they have this conversation where she says, she's more yours than mine, Asriel. He says, not so. You took her in. You tried to mold her. You wanted her. She was too coarse, too stubborn. I left it too late. But, but where is she now? I followed her footsteps up. You want her still? Twice you've tried to hold her, and twice she's got away. If I were her, I'd run, and keep on running, sooner than give you a third chance. Well, she did take that third chance, right? And it went poorly. That was the caves. But for a fourth chance, instead of going after her, she's at least doing the right thing and trying to protect her. Uh, and that, just that line that, like, she's more yours than mine, Asriel. I don't think so. Yeah. She's both... I think they she's both a good contributed DNA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Both of you have to pay child custody. <laughs> <laughs> not custody. What is it? Child support. Both of you have to pay child support. Um, There's a way out of that. Fuck. <laughs> 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 oh, sorry. Sorry. I, I, I mean, absolutely yes to everything that you've said here in terms of I mean, there's so many emotions going on in this scene and in this chapter, and we've discussed a little of them already, like, in terms of, like, Marisa trying to save her daughter, right? And, like, I mean, Asriel does care for Lyra, even though he, like, wants to be a Sundere, whatever. And besides, like, some of these parallels that you've brought up, I think there's another parallel, too, here, right, of, like, the first time that Mrs. Coulter actually saved slash tried to save. She she did succeed, right? Lyra's life at Bolvanger, right? It's it's in the context of a similar, like, contraption, right? Intercision is still involved, but this time Mrs. Coulter's trying to rescue Lyra's hair from the chamber rather than Lyra herself, and she's keeping herself from the chamber and not as opposed to Lara, right? Like there's there's kind of like the symmetry between uh their their positions and their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very interesting. Even the intercision at Bull of Anger. Mm, yeah. That's a great connection. Well, someone with whom their body has no symmetry is the president who's laying crumpled in the cage. <laughs> that bitch dead. 
Asriel yeah. asks after Lord Rogue, and Maurice is like, yeah, he dead. He's dead. Everyone's fucking dead. Everyone's just dead. Yeah. Asriel hits a button and loses flame down at the swaying zeppelin. Very interested how you got a flamethrower on that Tesla. Uh, and he watches the airship <laughs> bloom into a rose of white fire. The intention craft floats unharmed in the middle of that fire. Oh, and a force field now? Okay, Asriel. Uh, and he moves away, watching the Zeppelin slowly fall on top of the entire scene. Yeah, Azrael's investors are going to be so happy. His angel investors, if you will. I'd play an emoji send. Yeah. His, uh... Oh, and Madsen. Okay. So, as you said, right, like, Lord Rogue's dead... Um, a lot of people are dead, and I feel like there's something <laughs> here, right? Especially because we find out about both of their deaths, like confirmed at the same moment for the sacrifices of both, like the president, Father McPhail, and and Lord Roke. And I mean, both of them are doing it for causes that they believe in, right? And in the hopes of taking down someone, like taking someone down with them, in order to achieve the causes that they believe in, and. It is about sacrifice, especially self-sacrifice, and that is an important part of this book series, as we've discussed. And it's interesting to have two such, like, very high-esteemed leaders, like, in their respective areas, like, in the, of their respective people, die at the same time over the same altercation and in sacrifice here, right? I think we are supposed to, like, really see these two contrasted and next to one another, and we... I mean, I'm not gonna, like, sugarcoat it. Obviously, we see one of these sacrifices as noble and the other as cowardly, right? And and a big part of that is because we are primed to sympathize with one side of this effort much more. And because we don't want Lyra to die. But also that, like, in one, right, we see... I mean, we don't really see, but we assume, perhaps, like, the soul is aligned with the spirit for Lord Roke, right? Versus the other one when it comes to the intercision, where we assume... Um, like Father McPhail's, or where we see that Father McPhail's demon is not down with this plan. It's horrible. It's awful. How could you just do that to yourself? To your scaly, cute little self? I don't know. I mean, Lyra had to find the strength to do that to, I mean, and to a dog. How do you look at dog pan and be like, goodbye? Well, and that is part of it, yeah. right? That Lyra had to look and do that, and her sacrifice was for a much greater purpose. Yeah. Well, the entire scene whirls into the darkness as they zoom northward in the intention craft. But Mrs. Coulter couldn't take her eyes off the scene. She watched behind them for a long time, gazing with tear-filled eyes at the fire, until it was no more than a vertical line of orange scratched on the dark and wreathed in smoke and steam, and then it was nothing. Coulter is finally affected by something, anything, yeah, in these books, her. right? Um, yeah. She's affected by A, fucking worried that Lyra's dead as fuck, and then B, Lord Roke's death. I think it did affect her. Uh, he went out of his way to protect her and the cause, and he died for it and her and for Lyra. Mm-hmm. And she even touched him. I mean, that might be part of t- part of it too, right? Why she like felt felt that so much? Like she, her demon touched him. When's the last time she touched another person? Not out of anger or defense or whatever. Besides Asriel, Lyra. Yeah, yeah, I think so. In the cave, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone, 
that brings us to the end of the three chapters that we are covering today. We are going to talk a little bit more about um, how some of this connects to the rest of the story, but also maybe some of the novellas, some of the boobs of dust. And as we said up top, if you do not want to hear the discussion, if you do not want spoilers for any of those parts of the story, just don't do it. All right. Just don't <laughs> do it. Oh my god. Yes, we are giving you the opportunity to bow out now gracefully. Go go off with your day or your evening and have a great time. Thanks for coming to hang out with us and listen. Yes. And we will return next month with another episode of The Amber Spyglass for you. But for those of you sticking around, if you're ready to get dusty with us and get spoiled, then let's do so. Let's jump on in. Get dusty. Get dusty. Get dusty. All right, so I'm getting dusty, and here's what I'm getting dusty about. Um, so yeah, Coulter, witch possibly, right? We've talked about witch, 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 you know, witch, witch, witch here. We don't <laughs> know if she's a witch or not, you know. Uh, there are definitely some hints. The show kind of seemed to, to have some little hints at it. Uh, the novellas have had some little hints at it. So lots of witch nods to Lyra and Coulter in the outer works, as well as maybe in the inner works. And it does make me wonder, like, that is technically severing. Like, the witches go through and they have to sever from their demon on a lake. This is in the novella in Serpentine. And they Mm. have to be like, bye, bitch. I'm a witch now. And that's why some of their relationships are a little bit strained. And we kind of see that Lyra had to kind of do a similar ritual. So it makes you think maybe Coulter did too. I would have found it interesting, a very interesting thing, had she just sat down and was like, surprise, bitch. <laughs> it's almost like kind of worse for like, I think Marisa and Lyra in that. So the witches, like, I think that the demons and I assume the witches are kind of raised understanding that's part of their culture. Mm-hmm. you know, from a young age, and they know that this is coming, they can kind of sort of steal themselves for it, for, like, Marisa and Lyra. Like, they don't have to. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, like, meaner. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. That line is vague, though. I will give it that. Like, he does keep it kind of vague that he says the bomb would work whether or not she was part of it. You know, because obviously he means because the president is jumping on board, but... I mean, there's a bunch of other people that he could have forced into there, too, right? Like, all these other random-ass people. All the other people that still died because of the bomb. All the other people Uh, that are, like, in the church, (laughs) so... I love that the bomb, like... Okay, you guys, I know this is a big spoiler. Don't tell everyone that didn't listen to this yet, but Lyra doesn't die. Yeah. What? You know, I mean, she will someday, but Lyra doesn't die from the bomb. Same. And maybe we'll talk about it next month more, but yeah. I don't really recall if it's explained why. I don't remember, and I haven't done my reading for the next few chapters, and I only read it once and a half. I, I did, and I have thoughts, and then I remembered that's not this, so. We'll talk yes. about that next week, for sure. Uh, the other thing in book one I really loved rereading about that reminds me of all this is that Roger had a second cousin, Simon. Do you remember yeah. Simon Carslow? Yeah. yeah. And I have to say, Alice Lonsdale, Alice Parslow, 
Lonsdale. Alice Retcon Lonsdale. <laughs> Alice Retcon Marie Lonsdale. Um, when she like got older, after she got married, she got her entire husband's family hired there. I respect the fuck out of that bitch. Yeah. She was like, yeah, I'll get you a job. I There's got some you. parasite shit. <laughs> like, we hook it up here. But in we a good way. family up. Yeah. 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 I'm scared about going down into that cellar. <laughs> I mean, we know what's in the cellar. We've been there. Wine and dead bodies. Oh my god. Uh, praise be to you. <laughs> praise be. So this could probably go in a later episode, but I'm going to just say it now. You know, like, Marisa's over here contemplating, like, oh, what if the authorities, like, decrepit and old and huddled up and unable to die? And we also find out what happens when uh, the souls, not the souls, when the spirits, like, exit the underworld, right? They become part of everything and, like, dissipate. And I assume you all know this because... If you're in the discussion, I assume you know. Um, <laughs> but, like, I, I just thought that was interesting because, I mean, Lyra plays a big role, right, in the authorities' eventual, like, death. But because of her compassion, right, and I think this is another potential prof- pro- prophecy fulfillment, uh, though we know that the actual one is, like, more with the reversal of dust flow because we're told it but anyway so she and will feel super bad for like this being that they see stuck in like the crystal bubble they're like oh no bubble boy and so she and will like free him as they've like freed everyone else in the underworld and i just think it's a great mirror for uh lyra's arc considering that a lot of her struggle right has been about trying to be free I mean, that's, like, an overarching thing for everyone in this book, but especially, like, her trying to be free from her mother, trying to keep her in a sort of bubble, too, right? Like, keeping her from experiencing life, seeing the world, living, and, like, when the authority is released from that crystal bubble, right? Since he's an angel, he isn't really dying in the same way, like, when he's gone forever. Like, he, like the rest of the souls when they leave the the underworld, like, or the demons, right? Made of dust, he becomes part of everything else now, too. Yes. And that is something, too, that we're, like, very constantly surveying the series of good versus bad and what's good, what's bad. Mm-hmm. And, like, those men that die out there on the, the rocks and on the hill there with the bomb, like, did they all deserve to die? We don't know. We can't say that. As yeah. we apparently did say that. <laughs> apparently. But... Like, the authority, when we get there, eventually, it turns out it's just the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Yeah. It's just, like, shriveled up. Like, he has no real power. Which is, again, like, the metaphor with letting the souls out. Yeah. You know, like, that's getting rid of the power. That was the power. The power was telling them that they were there forever. Right? With nothing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And even he was a prisoner unto himself. And it's like, even some evil people are imprisoned in themselves too you know like some of them aren't actively evil it's that people are doing things in their will etc which i think is interesting because like you have the angle that death is a part of life right he Mm. the authority is also a part of life even him Mm. dissolving into these bits going into the atmosphere he's a part of life life isn't just the good things it's not just the sky and playing like the ghosts were saying they miss which is a big part of life and the sun and the sky and all the good things and the blades of grass and the flowers but also there's bad there's suffering yeah i I think him getting reabsorbed is showing like the way you deal with that suffering is living i will say like i didn't bring this up in the other parts of the episode 
But like, as you were saying, right, a lot of life is suffering. And I guess the Harpies <laughs> would accept that too. But like, it kind of sucks, right? If you have to relive like your trauma and like a terrible, if you've had a terrible life, right? And that's your payment in order to just fucking get to the other side. And uh, and like, I don't know, that was something that I was kind of thinking about. And in the sense that like, no one's entitled to your stories, but I guess it is like a payment to be taken to the, I don't know. It, it but like what you were saying. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This could have been I think that's I guess, part of it too there. is that that's like that's so the spirit's sticking around. Like part of it is because they've been trapped there, but also part of it is that that's just their life forever now and there's nothing else and they don't have the capacity yeah. after so long to believe there could be anything else too, right? So there's almost that little bit of hope and that like that you need to get rid of your baggage with the harpies before you can go on to leave the underworld of horrible things and and go on to be free and the world is and float around the atmosphere so like in a way it's like a therapy session and at the end you just leave and float out i think is the other thing yeah i guess i mean like the harpies kind of make it clear right they don't care like if it's a happy or a sad story they just want true ones and Mm -hmm. i guess the harpies are happy for you to trauma dump on them as i guess is the yeah. term <laughs> and that the, they're fine with that and but well, it just boy do they have a copay yeah. because sign me up <laughs> oh my god coming through <laughs> beep, beep. yeah uh, so i just thought that was i was like damn you made this agreement for everyone coming after that's a big new deal lyra's new deal you know yeah lyra's new deal there was something Technically, uh, the technically the Galavespians in a way too. Mm, they mm-hmm. negotiated it. They were, and well, that's such a big thing, right? That they, as a people, were involved in the negotiations yeah. to free the underworld. That's huge for the Galavespians. It is. That is big. That young martyr woman that died a martyr centuries ago. You know, the ghost. Mm-hmm. I loved when she proclaimed, you know, passage to heaven when we were alive was great and all, but it, it's fake. It was all fake. We all suffered yeah. for it. Because that also is part of it, too, like what we were just saying about living life, that some spent their lives in solitary prayer, letting it all go to waste. And it's interesting because when we reconvene with Lyra in the secret commonwealth, she's kind of the young martyr woman now. Interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like her life is kind of going to waste now. She's unhappy. Everything's kind of horrible. Her connection with Pan is fucked up. Well, she sacrificed, like, I mean, that's the thing, right? That's what I was talking mm-hmm. about, like, to an extent that what we were discussing in terms of trauma. She's, like, sacrificed her mental health and her emotional well-being for everyone. Yup. And for what? Like, I guess a technically, like, long-term, infinite, like, long-term gain, but... <sighs> It is a little sad, you know, you go to the underworld, you don't, like, see necessarily in the same way and commune with the people that you knew in the way that Lyra would with Roger, because everyone else is, like, now out in the universe. It's a little different. I had this tinfoil, this really tinfoil moment, uh, as we were going through the episode, where they were remarking on, oh, Fra Pavel has gotten really fast, huh? Hasn't he at reading the lithiometer? Could Fra Pavel be using the new method that is introduced in the secret commonwealth? I love it. I fucking love it. That's it. I don't even think it's tinfoil. It's canon. It's canon. Okay. 
<sighs> I don't know, though. That mousy little fucker, he's going to pass out from the strain. He better settle down. He probably will. But, um, you know, he, he might envision himself as a martyr as well. And he's willing to do that sacrifice of sacrificing his physical and mental health to do the new method. I think every fucking man that steps foot into that building thinks he's some great fucking martyr that has done some great service to his god and he's going to someday just suffer and everyone will know his name because of his suffering. Yeah. In Frappavel's defense, I know his name, so. (laughs) It's Fra. Fra. (laughs) It's Fra. Oh my god. Well, that's all the time we have for fun and shenanigans this week. And Fra. Fra. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much for listening. This was our second episode this month. It was very fun doing a two-in-one. One one at the front, one in the back, as Aliana appreciates. I'm in the front. (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with you. So Uh, much. As always, be sure to check us out over on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Or if you have some thoughts about the episode, tweet them at us, message them to us. Give us an email with your thoughts, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and of course, you can always find us and new episodes, whether it's His Drug Materials or Song of Ice and Fire or, I don't know, maybe something else someday, on any of the platforms on which we are hosted, such as Apple podcasts uh podbean google play um i'm out of i'm out of practice spotify iHeartRadio, pandora uh acast overcast i think that was good enough stitcher you did great you did great thank you thank you yeah and if those aren't enough for you you can get a private rss feed of all of our episodes including our bonus episodes if you sign up at patreon.com slash girls gone canon in the stranger tier or above yes stranger tier and above five dollars and above will get bonus episodes every month on a series we're covering or other books that we're interested in or other things we're interested in so keep your eyes peeled for this month's which will be a song of ice and fire themed or next month's which will be cersei from madeline miller and of course we do host events over at our discord patrons in the ten dollar and above tier the thunder tier and above Get access to those events. This month, we will be doing a His Dark Materials rewatch starting up this coming week, January 29th, hosted by our friend Pete, starting at 1 p.m. Eliana time, Eastern time. I'm not wrong. And the day after that, on the 30th, we will be hosting a brunch slash happy hour with our patrons. So that will be from 1 to 3 p.m. Eliana time, and we hope to see you there. It could also be BST you know, British Standard Time, or if you will, Boobs of Dust Standard Time. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Oh, God. Is that, I don't know if British Standard, I think they actually have multiple. I think it's GMT's uh, five hours. and. I you know, know what? I did the best I could. <laughs> and it was not very good. Well, I, we hope to see you there at the rewatch and, and slash or brunch. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode. I have been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. We'll talk to you next month. Goodbye. Praise be the he.